Okay, we put on the board some of the things that we were talking about the other day. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, I believe, will be mentioned 17 times uh, throughout Joshua 3 and 4. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned around 12 times. We see the idea of Joshua as a prophet uh, and comparisons between the Exodus and entering the land. But let's read from verses uh, 1 through 11. Uh, let's see, maybe it's best to... Uh, well, well, we'll see when we get there. We may go a few extra. It came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord, to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. And each of you is to take a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask you later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones will be a memorial to the sons of Israel. Then the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up the twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord had spoken according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priest were, who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. So for the priest who carried the Ark standing in the middle the priest who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded to Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed and it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed before the people okay so one of the main points of focus, last time we saw the priest carry the Ark of the Covenant, they stepped in the waters of the Jordan, the waters stood up as one heap, the waters divided, and Israel crossed over on dry ground. We saw last time in 3 verse 12 that they chose one man from each tribe one man from each tribe and we weren't told the reason they were chosen back in 3 verse 12. But we read here in 4 verses 2 and 3 that there was one from each tribe chosen and apparently stronger men they were to get rocks from the Jordan and they were to set them up on the bank at Gilgal. They took the uh, stones from the middle of the Jordan you may have noticed in reading it's difficult where there are two sets of stones. 
that were erected here. Did they first take some stones from the Jordan and put them at Gilgal and then take some stones from the land and put them in the middle of the Jordan? Um, some translations uh, word these things a little differently. And uh, most of the text focuses, though, on taking one, uh, one set of stones from the Jordan and setting them up at Gilgal. I don't think it diminishes our faith either way if there were two sets instead of one. But, but verses uh, 8 and 9 could be read that they got these st- stones from the Jordan and set them up on dry ground. But what? do all these stones mean? He said, a day's going to come and your sons are going to ask you, what do these stones mean? <clears throat> What's the answer to that? The salvation of the Lord. Right okay. Right it is a reminder of what God has done. And it is a reminder that God divided up the waters of the Jordan and let Israel cross over on dry land. And one of the purposes of the crossing of the Jordan and the purpose of one man from each tribe picking up these stones and setting them down at Gilgal, the purpose of this is it provides an opportunity for parents to teach their children about God. An opportunity for parents to teach their children about God. Now, one of the things we put on the board is comparisons between the Exodus and entering the land of Canaan. And this is a very significant connection. Look back at Exodus 12, at Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. In Exodus 12, verse 26, it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this right mean to you? That you will say, is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bow low and worship. What I'm trying to stress is the Passover ceremony itself was designed by God so that one day your children are going to ask you What does this right mean to you? Or uh, we find historically that some Jews later, there would be the youngest uh, boy of the house who would ask the question, why is this night different from all other nights? And it gave them the chance to tell the Exodus story. But a chance to teach their children about God. And Joshua 4 verses 6 and 7 and also we'll see verses 19 through 24 are going to come back to that theme. That shows us God places a high priority on parents teaching their children. Parents teaching their children about God. Sometimes we think and I know this by fact, that we think the knowledge that we've accumulated um, is automatically going to be transferred to our children. 
but they come in as blank slates and must be taught. And the primary responsibility for teaching our children is not with the schools or with the Bible classes at church, but with us to teach them the ways of God, the high priority God sets on that. Now, where are some cases? The stones are said to be for a memorial. For a memorial. Um, Can you think of other cases in the Bible where God made stones a memorial? Andrew? Uh, Isaac with the rocky slipphone. Okay. It's Jacob, but you're right. But Jacob, uh, very good. It's, It's the first one I really think we encounter in Genesis 28, verses 18 through 20, where he takes the a rock that he slept on, he anoints it, and he says, um, this will be the house of God, and his name Bethel as a result. So very good, very good. Uh, keep thinking, Brad, if you first, got one. First Samuel 7, Ebenezer. Very good. First Samuel 7, Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. Um, I'm quoting the song maybe more than I am the exact text. But Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. And he calls it Ebenezer. Now, right after the case Andrew mentioned before, you may remember too, there is a case in Genesis 31 where Jacob and Laban set up some stones and they make a vow. I will not go beyond these stones to harm you and you're not to go beyond these stones to harm me. Now, you you may think of some others that may, uh, that we may need to put up there. But one of the things that I wanted to stress by this question You all have already named, or we've already named up here, all the ones that I had outside of Joshua. But it's going to happen over and over again in Joshua. For example, when Joshua 7, verse 26, after Achan is killed, they set up stones over where he was executed. And his death... And his, the stones, are to serve as a marker. And chapter 8, verse 29, after the king of Ai dies, you see the same thing. In chapter 10, verse 27, they roll a large stone in front of the cave where those five kings had hid themselves. Uh, after they're executed, their bodies are thrown into the caves. And then at the end of the book, Joshua says that the stone will be a witness of the covenant that you have made. I can remember preaching a lesson once, what do these stones mean? And just going through each of these incidents in the book of Joshua and what those stones taught us. I'm still convinced 
that was a good lesson. I, I was a lot more excited about it than the audience was. Uh, that happens sometimes. But what do these stones, what do these stones mean? But here it is an opportunity for parents to teach their children about God. Bob? This is a little more abstract maybe that uh, when I read the Old Testament I constantly look for uh, things that describe to me the nature of man and the nature of God because so much of that is revealed to us in the Old Testament. And uh, I think at the same time this emphasis being put on is to teach our children uh, the fact that the children, the child sees it and asks the question, the father or the mother is there ready to answer the question and give the full account. And, and God has caused this to take place because the nature of man is that he won't. Mm-hmm. It's not in his nature to do that. And we have to constantly uh, work on that. And yes. To be able to sh- uh, keep dear to our heart yes. you know, what God has done for us. Uh, come to mind of wooden stones, but number sixteen, when uh, when they they pounded the fire pans out that Korah and his yes. people had used, and where they put them? Yeah, they nailed them on the side of the altar. Yes. How often did they see those? Yes, that's that's a very good very good point. Number sixteen, same kind of thing as those stone memorials that they set up. But but yes, um, it is difficult sometimes to take the energy to teach our families. It is difficult to take the the effort, but... And I'm not saying we don't. I won't throw that out there. No, I think what you said is true. If you just said it's difficult for us to do it, it's not our. It's not come easily. We have to be reminded, and 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 so I think that is true. And I think, and I think that this is a there's a constant push sometimes to overcome inertia to do that. But but I will tell you too. When I run into somebody that I was in college with. Their first conversation is going to be how their kids are doing spiritually. And a lot of their well-being in life, mentally and emotionally, or lack thereof, is dependent upon how their children are doing. And the thing we all must do is learn it when you have opportunity to change it. When you have opportunity to teach you have opportunity to guide them in his way. Uh, it, it is also interesting to me, he picks one man from each tribe. Every tribe participated in this crossing, and every tribe has a stake in this and is to remember this event. But but what, what are some other things that we should have dealt with more significantly than we did. Anything? I, I, I think, and you probably have already have said some things about this, but uh, just to see that these people uh, at, at that time, they had to step out in faith in order to see the greatness of God. I, I think sometimes we, we need to emphasize things like that for our own lives, the, the things 
That's right. Often in the Bible, you know, the people when they were at the cross shouted, Come down and we will see and believe. And sometimes that that is the way faith comes, you see and believe. But sometimes in the Bible too, especially when we're already believers, we believe believe enough to do what he said, and then sometimes we see. And so works that way as well. And I think that's what you're stating. They had to take the first step into Jordan and then the Lord divides it. One of the saddest um, verses in this time period is Judges when it says Joshua and his whole generation died and another the next generation grew up and they didn't know God or what he had done. Um, And I'm not exactly sure if any of those were walking across on dry ground here mm-hmm. and they still had not but for sure the stones were there and um, I think maybe what Bob was speaking to is the the, the tall task of, of trying to lead someone in that and Joshua and his generation it seemed like they, they failed to do that so if, if they did do their job of teaching, the, the, the future generation did not have learning right. anyway. Because there, it's Judges 2, verse 10 that Brad refers to. There arose another generation that didn't know the Lord or his goodness to Israel. I think, too, what something Bob said earlier is, is key is to look for what it says about the nature of God. Look for what the text says about the nature of God. Look for what it says about the nature of man. Now, look at verses 12 and 13. Should this surprise us that these tribes are specifically mentioned? The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, what do those tribes have in common with each other? They're on the other side of the Jordan. Sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war, crossed for battle before the Lord uh, to to the desert plains of Jericho. Now, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. They were mentioned together in 1, verses 12 through 18. Joshua approached them and said, Remember what you promised Moses. Remember you promised that if Moses gave you this land, you would leave your children, you would leave your little ones behind, you would go and fight for your brothers, and after the Lord had given your brothers rest in the land, then you will come back and occupy your land. And the people said, just as we have obeyed Moses, we will obey you. And now here in 4, 12, and 13, we find that they did that. 
They did what the Lord told them to do. They cross over before their brothers equipped for battle. They are doing what they promised. Joshua is a rare book. I know what Brad said earlier. Either this generation failed to communicate their faith or the next generation failed to receive it. But as far as the book of Joshua itself, the people are more faithful than they're not. There are exceptions to that. We're going to see an exception in Achan. We're going to see an exception in Gibeon. But, But they vowed that they would do this, and they did it. Now, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are going to come back again in chapter 22. Really, we could say that whole chapter and something that's said there. But the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh receive more emphasis here in the book of Joshua than any of the historical books, really. And Well, maybe that's because of what an extraordinary leap of faith they had to take. Because they've left their families unprotected yes. for years yes. during the time that you know the conquest, and so they had to really um, trust that yes. these women and little ones and probably old people are on the other side of the Jordan, vulnerable, and you know, in theory, obviously they weren't in reality because God was protecting them, but from, you know, the perspective of these men who are leading them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I agree totally. Sometimes when a people were peaceful and not warlike, that was you, or, or, they, or the men were away, that was used against them to attack them, as we'll see when we get to Judges 18 in, in, the, in the book of Judges. But, um, but you're right. I mean, that did take some faith. But there is a statement in Exodus 34, I believe it is in verse 24, that God promises Israel that if they go, that they have enough faith to come up to the place he will choose three times a year and worship at the feast like he told told them. He said, no man will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. In other words, God's going to protect you. If you have enough faith to go up. Now, I know there's some limitations in this example. And I can even think of one exception that I experienced. In my, not I experienced, but someone in the congregation with me experienced. How many times have you ever known Brethren's house, though, to be robbed on Sunday morning? I just didn't know of one in all my preaching life. Uh, some of the rest of and, and we may get back tonight and not have anything but, but still still, I, I think though that we need to and I think too even every safe service we have is a reminder of God's protection as well as we remember occasionally when there is uh, calamity but in verse 14 on that day 414 the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So they revered him just as they revered Moses all the days of his life. Now we saw that God was going to exalt Joshua in 3.7. 4.14 says that he began to exalt Joshua. He exalted him and the people revered him. They revered him or feared him. Now we may, let's keep looking at the text. If we have enough time 
we may say something more about that verse and about that term revered which is used of Joshua in this passage. But in verse 15, it said, The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So the Lord is speaking to Joshua, says, This is what you tell the priest. Tell them to come up from the Jordan. In verse 17, what does Joshua say to them? So Joshua commanded the priest, saying, Come up from the Jordan. God told him that. That's what he said. He says it without adding to it or subtracting to it. And then in verse 18, it came about when the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had come up from the middle of the Jordan. What did people do? They did what the Lord told them to do. And so you find here God speaking to Joshua as a prophet, in effect. The prophet conveys that instruction to the people, and the people obey again. Thankful that in this book, generally, the people are obedient. When the priest stepped foot on the dry ground, and in 418, dry ground is different, or dry land is different than 317. 317 talks about stepping into the Jordan, and it becomes dry land. Now in 48, the dry land is when they step foot on what was always the dry land. But when they step foot on the dry land, when they step out of the Jordan, the Jordan returned to its place and went over its banks. Now, if you see, if you read many commentaries on this section of Joshua, you will see that there are references that there, that you'll see sometimes references to the fact historically we know of at least two times where this has been done throughout history, that the Jordan has been stopped flowing. There is a record from 1267 A.D., and I didn't know that we would necessarily have records back that far of this kind of thing, but the waters of the Jordan being cut off. And then there is a record, too, from 1927. How does that affect our interpretation of this text. I don't know that it does at all. It does show us there are historical precedents for this happening, but this text is obviously saying the Lord did it. And whatever natural means God used, whether it was a mudslide, whether it was an earthquake, or whether it was neither of those, the Lord did it. And the Lord's doing it here in this case is an extraordinary sign that they can teach their children and convey their faith. So I don't know what to do with those kind of things, uh, even though I assume they are true. I don't know if they are a help to faith or hindrance or indifferent to it. Uh, but in verse, in verse 19, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. These 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Same kind of question they ask in verse 6. Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now 5.1 really goes with this section. And it says, It came about when the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they crossed. Their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, Gilgal is the place here. Gilgal. See a little room. Uh, in 419, where they first encamp. Now, they will be at Gilgal. For a while. That will be the center. Look at 9 verse 6. In 9 verse 6, the Gibeonites, uh, they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. So in 9 6, this is their camp. Look how frequently that's stated in 10. In 10 verse 6. The Bible says the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. In verse 7, Joshua went up from Gilgal. In verse 9 of Joshua 10, Joshua came up upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. In verse 15, Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. So what I'm trying to say is this site becomes their main camp for a period of while. It's the first place they, they last, they, they come to as they cross the Jordan River. And they will set up camp here for several of the next chapters. And um, we'll talk about Gilgal more in just a moment. But again, you see... That the, the emphasis on this is a chance to teach their children. Just like verses 6 and 7, so we have in verses 21 through 24. I ask you to think about the question, and I hope we've sufficiently, we sufficiently, we'll probably write some of these things back up again. We may, we may, but we, um, We need the board space right now. Um, why? What purpose in the crossing of the Jordan? What are some things this crossing of the Jordan is said to accomplish? I ask you all that question. What are some things? We, we've dealt with some of these. What would they be? I don't know if it's stated 
is it for them remembering what the Lord has done for them and then teaching their kids with them? Yes, I, I, I do think that's obviously one purpose. The whole purpose of this, and before it can be a lesson to the children, I guess that's a good way to say it, they, they will remember and they will teach a coming generation of the ways of God. They will remember and teach. By the way, you know, isn't this true of a lot of things? I mean, it, sometimes I believe certain things happen. But if you've had opportunity like to stand at the very place where it happened, it sometimes gives you a different feel. Whether that be a battle at Gettysburg, whether that be um, some other historical marker, or whether it be the Holy Land, that often just that place brings back such a vivid flood of memories about the event. So God wants them to remember. And God wants them to teach their children, to communicate with them. Bob. One of the ways that God uh, lifted up Joshua before the people was through that miracle. Uh, because, very, very, I mean, they, they had to be, that's the second generation, uh, of course, uh, assembled there. But uh, they knew, knew the story of the Red Sea, and Moses was, of course, their leader then. So, uh, kind of a validation of Joshua in the eyes of the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a key point that's made. Moses is dead now. And you know what happens when a person dies, like they say, always become a lot more popular. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Moses is now, you know, right? Oh, everybody knows God spoke through Moses now, you know. And but the Lord's going to exalt Joshua just like He did Moses. And, and, and like Bob said, I, I think the very fact that there's so many points at which this corresponds with the crossing of the sea and the events of the Exodus only strengthens that link and exalts him more. So very good. Yes. Yes. What else? Boy, do you look like you had some... Uh, 310. Okay. Uh, God would be with them. There was evidence that God would, uh, would be with them. Okay, they know they're going to defeat their foes in the land of Canaan. By this you will know the living God is among you. I have divided these waters. You're crossing over on dry land. He mentions those seven nations in the land in chapter 3 verse 10. And he says, by this you will know that I am with you and that you are going to dispossess all these nations. If they doubt it, is God able to give us victory or can we win the victory? They're going to know by what God has done here. Okay? And their enemies know. Their enemies five, also. Five verse one says their their hearts melted um, in fear because they dried up the book. The enemies know it as well. And remember the, the fact, the language that's used here, their hearts melted. It is the same language that Rahab used in two eleven. Just like Rahab said. Our hearts have melted because we know the Lord has given you the land. This is an added assurance to the enemies as well. 
to God's people and to the enemies of the people. And um, Andrew? Between Rahab and 2 and in chapter 5 with all of the enemies, does Rahab specifically talk about just the people of Jericho are fearful? Or is she speaking for Canaan in, in, in its entirety like five is? Yes. Um, she says in 2.9, she says all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. That's 2.9. Now, obviously we speak sometimes generically. Everybody's saying this. All yeah. people are saying this. Well, we have access only to a limited circle. Um, how wide are we to apply those words? I don't know. But, but, but she thinks from what she's hearing, it seems to me, that she's taking it that, that this is not only a feeling in Jericho, but this is kind of a consensus that, w- that this is something to be afraid of. This is something to fear. And um, so you all have gotten um, my, my uh, the other points. The, the one that you all didn't have mentioned yet. Look at verse 424. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty. And so that they might fear the Lord your God. This is a lesson to all the earth of the nature of God. Bob said in reading, you look at the nature of God, God is mighty and we need to fear Him. This is the whole duty of man, the whole of man to fear God, to keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. There are several events in the Bible which are said to be a lesson to all the earth that God is God. Now, this is one of them. The Exodus was like that. In Exodus 9 and verse 16, David's defeat of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46. Interestingly, this kind of language is used in 1 Kings 8 to talk about God answering the prayer of the foreigner who comes to the temple to pray in verses 41 through 43. And I think this kind of language is used too in 2 Kings 19.19 of God giving the land uh, or God killing the Assyrians in the time of Hezekiah, defeating the Assyrians. But all of these, and there may be some things I'm missing, but, but all of these are stated specifically in the text as purposes of the, the dividing of the Jordan. It, it is a lesson to all of us of the greatness of our God. And just as they used it as, an, as something to strengthen them when they didn't know if they could defeat their enemies, so uh, they can, they can, we can learn from it as well. We can learn from it. Uh, Bob, you had something else. Uh, it just came to mind that uh, remember the account of Balak when he called Balaam and said, "Come and curse these people." Just what he did in that setting uh, tells me how afraid he was. Yeah. Uh, he, oh yeah. He, he, did, he didn't line up his army. Yeah. He needed something more powerful. Yeah. And what he didn't understand was he was asking God to fight with himself. Yeah. So and uh, and. He, he called, said, they, and they come and sit down by me. They camp by me. 
You know, Balaam likes the he said of Balaam, whoever you curse is cursed, and whoever you bless is blessed. Don't y'all remember that kind of Bible language somewhere? If you're doing your daily reading, you've encountered that today. Um, but um, then it's, it's said of Abraham. But you're right. That is that's a good that's a good illustration that Bob gives in Numbers 22 through 24 of just how afraid Balaam was. Now. I wanted to, to continue this idea of connections between the entering the land, connections between the exodus. We'll just say the exodus and the conquest, but we're specifically talking about things that happen right around here that happened in the exodus. Now, some of these we put on the board the other day, but... Um, in these, if I don't give you a book, it's going to be from Joshua. But the people cross over on dry land, just like we see in Exodus 14 and verse 21. Um, also interesting to me, there is a specific mention in Joshua 4 and verse 10 of the 10th day and the first month. Well, that was the day and month that in the original Passover that each family chose their Passover lamb. And we've already stated several times about most recently about the Lord exalting Joshua just like He did Moses. In Exodus 14.31, the people feared the Lord and they feared Moses. And we saw that the people were not to come near the ark. Not to come near the ark, just as they were not to come near the mountain in Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13. Then uh, the people are to consecrate themselves. They are to make themselves holy, purify themselves. And the same thing in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 10. Um, uh, I don't want to wear you out, um, but these are pretty big points. Um, let's see. The water, in Joshua 3, 16, the water stood up in a heap. The same thing is said of the crossing of the sea in Psalm 78, 13 in Exodus 15, 8 and we talk tonight about teaching your children and how you find that in the ex and you find examples of that um, in the Exodus Exodus 6, 12 verses 26 25 and 26 um the hearts of the Canaanites melted by one. Hearts of the enemy melt. Well, you see that same kind of thing in Exodus 15 in the poem about the crossing of the sea. And one more I want to mention here, and this is going to get on to what Paul Lord William is talking about next time, but uh, that is... That when they cross over, one of the first things they do is they keep the Passover. 
So really, they're leaving Egypt and their entrance to the land are bookend, bookended by the Passover. Now, so write those things down, people. They will be on the test. Okay. Um, now, this will, and, and, and um, now, Paul, next time you can preach, you don't have to worry. If you, if you want to expand on this, you will not have to worry about getting to chapter 7. I'm going to tell you that. Because um, the major Passovers in Scripture, major Passovers in Scripture, you've got Exodus 12, the original Passover, and all the instructions. You had this discussed in Numbers 9, 1-14, the so-called little Passover. You remember that was when on the second month and the 14th day, if anybody was unclean, you find this example in Joshua 5. You find... Um, then the next example you find is 2 Chronicles 30 in the days of Hezekiah. And then 2 Chronicles 35 in the days of Josiah. And then after they complete the temple in Ezra 6, 9-22, they also celebrate the temple. Excuse me, celebrate Passover when they complete the temple. The New Testament, of course, obviously... You have in Matthew 26-28 and all the Gospels, this is the setting for the death and resurrection. We mentioned Acts 12 the other night. Did you notice that Acts 12 where they pray for Peter and he's delivered is that he was waiting after Passover to bring Peter to people. If you look at Acts 12, there are all kinds of echoes of the resurrection. The same Lord who was raised from the dead is alive and well in the early church. But the theme in all these cases is deliverance. Deliverance, salvation, freedom. Now, I know freedom can be defined by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But in the Bible, particularly, freedom from the burden of oppression and sin. You know, I think that Egyptian bondage was a picture of an even more oppressive deliverer. And that was sin itself. But what, what we're doing here, this is again another Exodus connection. What is the point? of drawing out all these connections between this besides just giving students something to remember. Well, what's the point of it? <laughs> the unity of the Bible. I mean, One thing is the unity of the Bible. Today somebody wrote me a question and said, oh, the Bible is just the work. You know, well, they, they were dealing with somebody. They were answering somebody. They said, the Bible is just the work of men. It's not the work of God. I, how do I answer them? Well, the Bible is both the words of the human authors, but ultimately behind it, the words of God. But 40 different men 
wrote this book over 1,500 years and you have the unity of theme and message that you have in this book and that just happened by accident? I don't think so. And actually, we can use those arguments turn around against them. But God throughout the Bible uses the Exodus as a picture of salvation. Of a salvation that gets bigger and deeper. You find it in the conquest of the land of Canaan. You find it in the return from captivity. Remember, it's only the book of Luke, it's only the gospel of Luke that tells us what they, what Moses and Elijah were talking about with Jesus. And what were they talking with Jesus about? His exodus. His exodus. The point is the death of Jesus and the salvation it brings is comparable to the exodus. And then you find they're running two things together. In Revelation 15, the saints before the throne of God sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Heaven is compared to an exodus. Think about what it would have felt like to have been beaten by the Egyptians, to be oppressed, to be beaten, and to see their dead bodies on the shore and to know that you've crossed over and to know they would never bother you again and they shout, the Lord is my strength and my song and He's become my salvation. We will relive that event in eternity. That for our own salvation, for our own deliverance from sin. I had some good notes about what happened to Gilgal? And if if you run out, if you run out of things in five and six, Paul, you just be ready to hit them with with Gilgal. So y'all study about that. But 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 Paul's going to send you out some questions, or you may have some. I have some printed out. So if you want to grab some on your way out, Paul raising the bar for the class. <laughs> okay, Tommy, I just wanted to make sure you knew that Gilgal's name 